The Money Show. Investment School. We hear a lot about China, and we hear a lot of, di- of, of really disparate data on China. For example, Richemont came up with a trading update a couple of weeks ago in which it reported that sales were stratospheric and China was booming. A week before, Burberry, the UK-based luxury goods group, had said, well, everything is falling to pot because um, nothing really exciting is happening in China. De Beers today, um, the Anglo-American update, and we spoke to Duncan Oneblatt, the chief executive earlier, um, was talking about the fact that you know, luxury sales in China under pressure. Um, so certainly there are mixed signals coming through. We also know that one of the biggest property companies in the world has failed in China. We know that there's a big property debt overhang in China. We know the growth rates aren't what they were. We know that there is a, a, a crackdown in, in terms of government regulation on technology companies, which have been allowed to expand without so much as a, 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 a please, could you calm down and stop trapping children in your uh, addictive algorithms and now they're being asked to rethink the way they work. So most investors really, I think, are quite apprehensive about the China future. For a long time, China regarded as the the country that by 2030 will surpass America's GDP. That's looking less likely. India suddenly is the flavor of the month. But what does it mean, though, for China and for an investment opportunity in China? How cheap are Chinese equities? We know they're filthy cheap because we've seen the, um, the, the Shanghai index fall to levels last seen 30 years ago. Uh, what about the debt levels? What about all these bad questions? Let's get some common sense in here. Well, not so common, frankly. Um, some good, solid sense then. Simon Fillimore, Chief Investment Officer at Independent Securities. I could talk myself out of ever dreaming about investing in China because there is so much bad news. But perhaps that's precisely the time we should be paying closer attention to China, Simon. Yes, I I believe so. I think it's been a, a difficult place to invest over the last couple of years. And as you mentioned, um, investors in that stock market over the last couple of years um, haven't fared well, or for that matter, for, or for that matter, over the long term, the, the Chinese stock market is down 42 percent over three years. Over three years, and as you uh, rightly alluded, uh, both the Hang Seng and the Shanghai uh, indices are are at levels last seen two or three decades ago. So there's certainly a lot of uh, fear in that market at the moment. And we look, when we look at the Bank of America, um, fund manager survey that comes out every month, we see that the second most popular trade is for fund managers to bet against, uh, China. So certainly, um, there are a lot of, uh, reasons not to invest in China. Uh, but one could arguably, arguably say that, um, a lot of that bad news, um, is already in the price. Um, and then, I guess the next question is, uh, what would be the catalyst uh, for a change in sentiment um, in in Chinese equities? And a lot of investors have been expecting some type of uh, big bang bazooka from government in terms of stimulus, much much like they did in 2016 and 2019. But we've seen more subtle signs. And I think um, in terms of those subtle signs, uh, they've... Uh, literally taken uh, a playbook from what Ben Bernanke did uh, back in, in, in 2010. Um, and at the moment, the Chinese economy, it's no uh, secret, is, is struggling. Um, and that's creating um, a negative feedback loop. Um, so because people's wealth in terms of their um, housing, uh, 
uh, and their housing prices is, is, is their wealth is declining because of that. Um, they're less prone to spend, um, uh, just, which just repeats the cycle and it carries on. And what Ben Bernanke did um, in, in 2010, uh, when the US uh, was faced with high unemployment and um, falling house prices, um, he believed that a bull market in stocks would boost co- confidence, encourage spending, and raise output and employment. Um, and we certainly saw from the, the bottom of the financial crisis um, the impact um, that that had. Um, so we're seeing a similar thing from um, regulators in, in China. Um, and uh, we, we've more recently seen the, the Chinese um, sovereign wealth fund start buying ETFs. And then the um, Chinese securities regulator has started encouraging institutional investors um, to, to start particip- participating uh, in the market to try and get this positive feedback loop um, going. And then they've also done a number of other things where they've reduced uh, stamp duty to trading shares, they've uh, reduced brokerage commissions, um, they've reduced yeah. margin requirements. Um, so there's a whole lot of positive signs that we're seeing from uh, the regulators. And I think one thing you can generally count on is when a Chinese official is told to do something, he yeah. usually does He does it to the power of, of N. Exactly. How quickly would you like me to do it, sir, is generally the response. I, I, you, know, you were talking there, and I was sort of, my mind drifted a moment. I said, oh, look, he's talking about South Africa. So much is going wrong. So, many, so much is priced in. So many things. But if we looked at the all-share index over, I don't know, the last eight years or so, um, you would say, well, the market is flat. The JSC is going to be trading between, sort of, broadly speaking, seventy and eighty thousand, um, mostly in a mid-range, up to seventy-five thousand for much of the last seven, eight years, and therefore the JSC has gone nowhere. However, if I then just picked a handful of shares, I could probably have doubled my money, whether it be Standard Bank, Clicks, and Capitec, or any Mister um, Price and other retailers, perhaps um, Shoprite could throw it in there. If you stock pick smartly suddenly your performance relative to the index is the the outlier in the same way as China if you'd bought Tencent, uh, Alibaba and I don't know something else impressive um, you would have done you would have done very well out of China um, we, we're wrong to be obsessing I think about the index or not um, I think that the index is a broad representation of, of shares and I think for the average investor it's it's very difficult to pick a few shares and, and literally uh, say there are 200 shares in South Africa, for instance, that investors can invest in. Yeah, it's, it's probably, um, you, you can hold up both hands and that's the number that have done exceptionally well, um, over the last uh, decade. So it's almost like a needle, uh, in, in, in a haystack, um, in terms of, of picking them. And I think your point there pretty well is pretty good in terms of emerging markets generally. Um, have underperformed um, over the last uh, 10, 15 years. And we see these things move um, in, in cycles. And in fact, uh, many investors were actually fed up with the, the US um, in the early 2000s. There was almost a 10-year period where they underperformed uh, emerging markets uh, horribly. Uh, we've seen that cycle turn quite dramatically now. Um, and uh, yeah, these things tend to mean revert. Mean revert, and uh, and I expect the same will happen at some stage again.
Uh, can you let us know when and fire a starting gun so that everybody's aware of it? How, when we look at South Africa and we look at China, and I mean, you seem to be suggesting that China's worth a, a pitch at least. How much can investors put offshore via investment structures? Because if you do have money in South Africa and you're disappointed with the growth and you're worried about the fact that, you know, America's running very, very hot at the moment and you kind of go, well, I'd like to pop some into some Indian shares and I'd like to pop some into some Chinese shares as well. What what can you and can't you do? Yeah, so the, uh, the environment has changed quite dramatically for investors um, in terms of what they can invest o- offshore. Uh, so in terms of compulsory money, pension fund money, investors can now invest um, up to 45% of their uh, uh, retirement assets offshore, which is quite a significant portion. And in fact, we've seen a large differential in performance between those South African managers that have taken that uh, limit to, to the extreme and 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 those that uh, haven't. Yeah, I think your average South African fund manager last year would have generated um, a, pretty much a flat return, while those investing offshore, uh, having a significant portion offshore, would have would have earned about fifteen to twenty percent. So the, the the bulk of people have a significant portion of their assets in their retirement funds. So certainly in that, it's very easy to move 45% offshore. Uh, for any additional uh, capital outside that, um, there are uh, essentially two mechanisms um, that the Reserve Bank allows. The one is the annual um, single discretionary allowance, which every calendar year um, individuals are allowed to take out a million rand per year. Um, and then there's the uh, foreign investment allowance, which allows up to uh, 10 million rand every year uh, on a rolling 12 month basis. So essentially for a, um, a married couple, uh, couple every year, they can take out 22 million rand out of South Africa, which is in excess of most South Africans. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so for your average South African. Okay. But, but, but for the rest of us, for mere mortals, for mere mortals, not for those who've got the 22 million rand a year as a married couple, um, to disperse, you know, year in and year out. For mere mortals who've got 22,000 or 222,000 or maybe 2 million, I don't know, whatever it might be. Um, what are the options in the real world? Yes. Yeah, so the, the first option is the, um, uh, I guess on the JSC, there's a number of ETFs that trade, that track offshore markets. There are ETNs on the JSC that also track uh, foreign shares, uh, some of the bigger ones like Amazon and Microsoft. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole host of offshore service providers which offer investment platforms where uh, South Africans can invest offshore and access yeah, pretty much any share in the world or uh, fund in the world. So that would be the most obvious and uh, probably ideal choice for, for most investors. Chief Investment Officer at Independent Securities, Simon Fillimore, this evening on The Money Show. More with him in just a moment as we wrap up this Thursday evening edition of The Money Show. The Money Show. Investment School. The Money Show is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action at insights that create impact when action with collaboration through the Insight Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Simon Fillimore, the Chief Investment Officer at Independent Securities. Uh, when we look at 
market sectors, emerging market sectors in particular, asset classes, where you look at South African investors who have got a smaller and smaller universe in which they can invest. And you're not just going, well, it's China, America or South Africa. Can we cast the net a little broader? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, where one doesn't have stock-specific skill, there's a whole lot of ETFs that uh, these days host to in- investors' needs and whether one wants to invest in India, there would be an ETF for that. And similar you know, for any other uh, emerging market um, in in the world, like places like Mexico, Thailand, India, um, uh, there are ETFs for that. And um, you know, I think they, ca- they capture the beta of the market uh, well for investors. And there's also restrictions for investors uh, investing in uh, stocks directly. Um, so for in, in places like India, um, Vietnam as well, the, the restrictions on, 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 um, on, on what foreigners can do. And uh, you know, we, we had, I suppose it was quite an amusing um, experience when we could look, look back retrospectively at it. But we spent nine months opening up a stockbroking account in Vietnam um, so we could uh, buy a stock that we had identified that we thought would be the next big thing. So it took nine months to get the account <laughs> opened. Uh, then we put our order in with the with the stockbroker to buy the actual share, um, and um, they came back to us and said, "No, the stock um, foreigners have bought the stock to a fifty percent limit that the government has installed, and we can't actually buy the share." Oh. Um, so there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of nuances uh, like that when investing in uh, emerging markets, um, and I think for many of those instances, just the ETF uh, would be a better option. No, exactly. I mean, very few of us have got the, the capability all the time, the patience. You would have seen a huge opportunity, of course, in order to do so. Uh, but even with all of your skills, ability and understanding of markets, you know, when the rules change or the tides turn or the sands shift, um, it becomes that much more complicated. In China, I mean, the, the sectors that look attractive for investments in China, um, one has to go stock specific again. We know the big league names. Have you found some little gems hidden away somewhere in a in a corner of a Chinese cupboard? Uh, yeah, I think at, at at this stage we're still focused largely um, on the large or, or, or mega cap um, shares. Certainly, historically, we have invested in some of the smaller mid cap names. But I think when when liquidity starts flowing back or foreign liquidity starts flowing back into the Chinese market, it will move the uh, bigger names uh, first. And I think it's fairly to in, invest in the bigger names um, that we all know at the moment, just because the valuation levels um, are, are so depressed. When we, we run um, some of the part models on um, some of the large tech companies in, in China, and it's almost like we have to uh, bang the computer just to check that it's working properly. When we look at the numbers, the discounts to uh, NAV are, are so wide, and uh, some of them are, yeah, are just uh, ludicrous. But I, I can mention a few of them. It's something like NetEase, the second biggest gaming company in uh, in China behind Tencent, has 20% of its market cap represented uh, by cash. Alibaba, which everyone knows, has um, 30% of its uh, Market cap represented by net cash on its on its uh, balance sheet. Baidu has forty five percent. JD.com has eighty percent of its market cap represented by net cash on its balance sheet. You don't get those type of numbers unless uh, 
you faced with a very uh, depressed market. And I think in, in my career, I've probably only seen valuations uh, that cheap once or once or twice. And uh, that would be after the, the uh, global yeah. financial crisis and then after the dot-com bubble. Are there some smart ETFs in terms of ETFs that go for the top 50 Chinese tech companies or top 100 Chinese tech companies in the same way as I'm sure you can zone in on sort of smaller target areas rather than buying the whole S&P 500. You might want to buy just Magnificent 7. There must be ETFs that do that sort of thing. Yeah, there are. And I think in its um, purest form, an ETF is, is a wonderful in investment, they tend to be market cap weighted. So naturally, they're just um, rewarding the winners because as the winners get bigger, they just allocate more capital to them. And I think one of the um, dilemmas that investors face when they're looking at ETFs is there's actually just far too many of them. Um, and it, it often uh, becomes quite confusing. And there's an ETF if you want to invest um, in, in Japan. There's an ETF for that if you want three times leverage. There's an ETF for that if you want to have a Japanese ETF that's dollar hedged because you worry about the yen. Uh, there, there's an ETF. So I, I think um, generally uh, for investors, just a simple market cap weighted on a particular market um, is is the best thing uh, without getting uh, too clever. Um, you, you also tend to pay more for those um, esoteric um, ETFs. Yeah. And generally, we, we prefer the more vanilla type of uh, ETFs. It's very easy to get too smart by half. It most certainly is. Simon Fillmore, thank you. Chief Investment Officer at Independent Securities this evening, wrapping up The Money Show.